There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. All right, we'll forgo a song this morning. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Jude. Jude, of course, I, I like to be consistent, so I have to name a chapter. So it's Jude 1, although it only has one chapter, it's still a chapter. Small one, but still a chapter nonetheless. Jude chapter number 1. Let's all stand in honor and reverence to God's Word. We'll finish out this book today. And I am looking forward. Uh, this book can be a downer for the most part, but I'm telling you, Jude knows how to pull it out at the end of it and how to speak to our hearts. Jude chapter number 1, and we're going to pick up reading in verse number 17. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. Jude chapter 1, verse 17, down through 25. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some having compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior, who be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We've talked about different aspects of Jude. I want to talk to you this morning about the exhortation of Jude. What does Jude exhort the church to do beyond and because of what is taking place in the church with the apostates and the false doctrine being preached? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonder of your word. Father, I pray you would speak to our hearts this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to have confidence in you. God, there is a world that seems to be going towards hell 90 miles an hour and taking as many as it can with them. God, give us confidence that you're able to pull out of that a people unto yourself and uh, that are set apart, that are saved, that know you, that look to you as the author and finisher of their faith. God, give us confidence. Father, we pray for those that are lost this morning. God, that you would open your, their eyes. God, that we would be able with the gospel of Jesus Christ to reach into their lives and pull them from the literal flames of hell. Oh God, we pray for souls this morning. Speak to hearts. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Dr. Roland Taylor became the rector or pastor at a small parish church in the market town of Hadley in Suffolk in England in 1544. 
He was a loving and devout pastor as well as an orthodox reformer and placed the teaching of God's word as his primary calling. In life, his desire was to teach and to preach God's word above all. Matter of fact, one historian said this, he was a right and glorious image or pattern of all the qualities that Paul brings out in 1 Timothy 3 of a godly minister to the church. He is the good salt of the earth. He was light in God, a light in God's house set upon a candlestick for all good men to imitate and follow. He spent many years in Hadley in peace and in relative obscurity in that small town. But all that changed in 1553 with the ascension of Queen Mary I to the throne otherwise known as Bloody Mary. Queen Mary was a Catholic and looked to stamp out the true gospel, to stamp out reformation all throughout the country. She pledged to seek out and to weed out and burn every reformer in England. Well, obviously this led to a head-on collision between uh, Queen Mary and this obscure pastor in Hadley, Roland Taylor. After Roland Taylor interrupted a Catholic mass being conducted without his knowledge in his own church, he was arrested and condemned uh, to burn at the stake. After being, He had been held in prison for two solid years and then he was condemned to die at the stake. In February 1555, he was set to be burned at the stake before the very people within his church. How would you like that? <laughs> if I was going to be executed, to be executed right out front of this building, right in front of my congregation. That was the condemnation of Roland Taylor. What he was to uh, endure, uh, being burned to the stake before his own congregation. But, uh, but it would not be without some final exhortation from this faithful pastor. While standing at the stake, he exhorted his people saying this, Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word. And those lessons I took out of the Holy Bible. Today, come, I come to seal it with my blood. With that, he was struck by the guard, bludgeoning and bleeding in his face. And he was bound at the stake and then set ablaze, dying in the flames. Dr. Roland Taylor was a faithful pastor committed to the instructing of others of God's word and paid for it with his very life. Jude, Jude, the brother of the Lord Jesus, was very much the same way. This little warning letter spread all over the early church, sounding the alarm against subtle infiltrators of the church. And for his bold stance on God's word, Jude was rewarded with martyrdom. Church tradition says that Jude died as a martyr around the year 80, around the year AD 80 at Mount Ararat in Armenia, where he was crucified and pierced through by arrows. So like Roland Taylor, Dr. Roland Taylor, in these closing verses, gives us his final exhortation. Roland Taylor exhorted his church to continue in the faith, to continue in the principles 
of God's Word before He was burned at the stake. Here is Jude by way of its holy inspired letter calling us and exhorting us to continue in the faith. To follow the Lord Jesus in all confidence. He is giving His exhortation. And in this final exhortation, he gives it in three parts that every one of us should embrace. Here, are, here is Jude's final exhortation given in three parts. Number one, I want you to see that he denotes a grave caution. A grave caution. Look back at verse number 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we could call the whole bulk of Jude's words in this letter up to get, uh, we could call all these to bring us to this point, a grave caution. Everything that Jude said has been a caution. He's warned of the way of Cain, the way of Balak. He's warned of the subtlety of the teaching of Sodom and Gomorrah and of the, the children of, uh, of the, the, the outsiders that came out with the children of Israel. All kinds of exhortations. But it seems in this last part that he looks the church in the eye. Notice how he said it. But beloved, he points the finger at you. He's been telling and focusing on all the world around him and the apostates that are invading the church. But he looks you in the God-given eyeballs this morning and said, but you, beloved, remember. He gives the caution directly to the church. Jude makes it clear at the beginning of verse 17 that he's addressing the church as beloved. Beloved. You know, this is an endearing term. Do you realize to be called beloved is one of the greatest terms to be called as a Christian? The apostles did it in many of their letters. They called them beloved. Why? Because it was the very name that God gave His only begotten Son. He gave His only begotten Son. This is my beloved Son. To think that if you're saved by God's grace, you get the same moniker. Yes, you may be called a disciple, a Christian, or many other names. A saint as a Christian. But above all, one of the most beloved and tender names is this word, beloved. God, when God looks at the apostate world, He looks with them in fury and impending judgment. When God looks at His own child, He looks at them as a beloved. As with tender love and compassion, He looks upon His own people. When Jude calls these beloved. Beloved of God, he is looking at them in the eyes and saying, you're the beloved of God. If you're saved today, if you know the Lord is Savior, you're the beloved and this caution is to you. Number one, he cautions them, first of all, to remember. Notice verse 17. He said, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of your Lord Jesus Christ. By the time Jude writes this letter between A.D. 70 and A.D. 90, much of the New Testament had already been written. Much of it had already been circulated among the churches. Jude, in many senses, is just reinforcing teaching that has already been given. This letter is kind of a tag at the end of a song. It's an extra little part. It tells us, it exhorts us very much the same things. 
You see, the apostles' doctrine and teaching had already been documented, already been circulated, and had already been taught for decades. And Jude exhorts them to remember what they have been taught. Jesus taught in Matthew 24, 11 that many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. Uh, this is passed on by the apostles in the books, uh, books of the Bible like the book of Acts, second, first and second Timothy and second Peter about the coming of apostates, the coming of false teachers. Jesus taught it to his apostles. His apostles taught it to the church. And so what is being said in Jude is not far off. It's not far off from what the apostle Peter and Paul had already been teaching. What Jude is telling us here is that we need to identify. Uh, we, uh, what Jude is telling us here is, here is that we need to identify the apostate or sniff out the false teaching. What is needed for that is already given to us in the word of God. You already have it. Everything that you need to sniff out the latest fad, the latest false doctrine, the great new hero in the religious world, you have everything you need to sniff out the false doctrine. Now, unless you're a a recent convert, you already know most of this. I was looking back over my notes over the past 10 years that I've been here. We have preached through 20 books of the Bible. 20 of them. Nearly one third of the entire scriptures. You know what is truth. You know what has been shared. You know the revelation of God. The task is, like Jude says, not to let it slip. Not to let it go. Not to let it fade from memory. Mark it down right now. When it comes to Christian teaching, I look, I like what, I like what uh, 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 Dr. Jerry Vine said. He said, listen to this very closely. This is a great little tool that will help you measure any kind of doctrine. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Did you hear what I said? If it's new, somebody comes out with a new doctrine, you can automatically mark it off. There have been wiser men than you and I comb this book for hundreds of years. There is nothing new under the sun as far as God's Word and the teachings of the Christian faith. There's nothing new. And if it is true, it's not new. It's somewhere in the Scriptures. It's somewhere in ancient writings. It's somewhere in men gone by. You can mark her down. There's nothing new teaching going to come. This is all the more reason from the day we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to the day you pillow your head on your deathbed to be ardent students of God's Word. Because you have a mind just like mine. I flip through my notebooks and I see messages I have no idea I ever preached. You know, I've been nostalgic lately, right? I'm flipping through books and I'm like, man, that's a good message. I didn't know I I preached that. I gotta preach that one again. I gotta look that one up. Why? Because we are all prone to slip. That's why you read your Bible every day. That's why every time the doors of the church are open, you have an opportunity to come and hear the Word of God explained. You ought to be here so that we not let it slip. Jude said, remember what you've been taught. Remember. 
Jude says, remember, probably the greatest antidote of false teaching is remember what the Word of God says. Why are there so many people being duped into Jehovah's Witness, the Latter-day Saints, uh, uh, the, church, the, the, the charismatic end of the church of God? Why? Because they've stopped reading their Bibles. They've stopped understanding God's Word. Jude says, remember. You, you want to you wanna clear yourself from false religion? Remember what God's Word says. We are to remember, he, he, he cautions us. We are also to realize. Now, verses 18 and 19. In these two verses, there is a bit of wordplay going on. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I cannot read Greek. I'll click on the word. I'll find its definition. I'll go see what somebody said about it, but I cannot read Greek. So I'm not going to pretend to be able to explain to you the little wordplay and the nuance of the Greek language to show you the little wordplay going on, but I will sum it up. Notice verse 18 and 19. Notice what it says. How that they told you. Who told them? The apostles. The apostles told them that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Jude's day was not much different than ours. I want you to understand me. The similarities are unbelievable. In those days, those that opposed the moral imperatives of Scripture, those that supposed to have loosed themselves from the chains of biblical truth and have embraced a mindset of anything goes in their life, they call themselves, well, they call them in this day and time, what? Liberals, progressives, modern, and enlightened. Isn't that what they call themselves? Those that have been loose from God's Word. Those that have said, we believe that God has more revelation. We believe God has something else. They have loosed themselves and they'll call themselves progressive, liberal, um, modern, and enlightened. Anybody that holds to the Bible, what do they call? Fundamentalists, fuddy-duddies. If anybody's having a party, they want to pour water on it. You know, we're called every negative name in the Scriptures. Now, they style themselves, these that are progressive, modern, liberal, they style themselves as to have taken the high road in life logic. They're those that are re- they're the real spiritual ones. Their names and tags, are like those, are, are, there are a tendency with them to look down their noses at folks that believe the Bible. Have you ever gotten that before? Mom, please don't give me that Bible again. Dad, please, I do not want to hear that Bible. Oh my goodness, here's, here's Christian so-and-so. Let's all bow our heads and pray. They taunt and mock as though they've been enlightened. They know something you don't. You're the one in chains. They're the ones that is liberated. Therefore, they mock, they scoff, they roll their eyes, and they belittle. That's where we get in verse number 18. Uh, verse number 18, how that there should be mockers. And they, they've loosed themselves from the mores of Scripture, so they go on to live according to their own lust. If, it, if they want to fornicate, they just fornicate. If they want to have sex outside of marriage, they, they could, well, I don't think that applies now. I just do what I want to. I just live any way that I please. That's what they do. 
They mock, uh, say, they mock saying that Orthodox Christian is a closed-minded bigot while they chase after their sinful cravings. They seek to separate themselves. Notice this. Look at this. In verse number 19. These be they who separate themselves. Remember what he said about the love feast? And how they would separate themselves in 1 Corinthians. They'd have their own little clique. Their own little group. They'd impress them and the heck with everybody else. They'd do their own thing here. They're saying that they're separate. They separate themselves. They go make their own church and live any way they please. And preach just love and not the justice of God. They're all around us. They're all in town. If you, if you have any kind of sexual proclivity, there is a church out there. There is, a, there, is a, uh, there is someone that will pander to what you want to hear and tell you what you want. And so they're out there. They follow their fleshly, sensual appetites. So verse 19 says they are sensual. I know that's easy to skip, but listen to this. Here's the thing. In the Greek culture, in that culture in that time, those that were loose from the mores and morals of the religious faith, of the religious world, they saw themselves as enlightened. They are beyond the fleshly, beyond the animals or beyond fleshly desires, carnal desires. They are above soulish. That's animal, you know, an animal, uh, an animal may have a soul, but it can't have a spirit. An animal knows emotions, an animal knows to cry. They said, we're above that, we're the truly spiritual. Because we've been enlightened. We know the world. We know what things are like. And in reality, Jude says, you've got it backwards. You've got it backwards. You don't have the Spirit. The believers in God have the Spirit. Notice what he said in verse number eight, uh, verse number 19. Be, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, that means fleshly, having not the Spirit. We're the ones that have the Spirit. We're the ones that have arrived at the point of ultimate revelation. We have seen God. We have met God. If you're here saved by God's grace today, you've encountered the God above. You have the Spirit of God indwelt in you. You are the upper echelon. You are at the height of what it means to be human, to engage with the living God. So don't let the world look down its nose at you. What you did is flip the ladder upside down. He's telling the church, you're not the ones in the dark, you're the ones in the light. And the rest of the world, even though they say they're not carnal, what do they do? They're sensual. They do, listen, they want to follow after their own lust. That's what he's saying here. This is the great caution because you know what can happen when we... When we are faced with a world that says, you Christians are on the wrong side of history. You're going to be seen as bigots come 20 years. Your grandchildren are going to tear up your graves because of what you believe. You're on the wrong side of history. I tell you what, that can hurt. That can intimidate. Remember earlier it said that they're like waves of the sea. The sea is so huge you can't stop it. You seem to be at the mercy of the sea. We can feel like we're at the mercy of a world that says this Bible's not true. Its morals are corrupt. It's the wrong thing to do. Live as we are pleased. Do what you want. That's the way to live. That's the enlightened way to live. And we can seem to ourselves to say, man, it's us against the world. It's us against all my friends. 
It's us against my parents. It's me against my kids. But the reality is, is that the ladder is flipped around. You that believe on the Lord Jesus, that are saved by God's grace, don't let the world look down its nose at you. Because you've received the Spirit of God. You truly, in that Greek society, it is you. That's what you said. It is you that have arrived. It is you that know what is enlightenment. It is you that know the truth. And not the world that disparages you for the way you believe. He gives them a great caution. You see, what, take, what takes a car? And, he, and again, he said, why? Because you have the Spirit. He said, the world has not the Spirit. Jesus Christ said if we believe in Him, He would give us the Comforter, give us the Spirit. Paul said we've been sealed by the Spirit. He's coming and dwelt inside of us. What is it that makes a, takes a carnal man chasing the desires of lust and sin and transforms him into a self-denying, God-loving, Christ-following Christian? It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you got saved, it wasn't you tightening your belt and saying, by golly, I'm going to do what's right. It was the Holy Spirit of God that invaded your life and transformed you, made you somebody different. You have arrived. You have arrived at the place that God wants every one of us because we've been created to know Him, to fellowship with Him, to serve Him, to enjoy God. Don't let the world look at down its nose. That's the caution of Jude. Uh, second of all, we want you to see not only a grave caution but also a glaring contrast. Man, I tell you what. These three verses, 20, 21, 22, four verses, these verses right here, man, I wish I could spend two, three more weeks on them. They are wonderful. But we're going to blaze through them as quick as we can. Notice, first of all, in, in verses 20 through 23, we have a glaring contrast. After all the arguments that Jude has given in the previous verses and all the illustrations and biblical comparisons to identify the apostates loose in the church, now he focuses on the child of God and makes a contrast between the believer and the betrayer. He said, listen, I've told you all about the betrayer. I've told you all about the apostates, the Judases in the church. Now I'm going to compare them to what the child of God looks like. What do the beloved look like? Who are these children of God and what do they look like? So much could be said here, like I said earlier, but I want to go through some quick things. Number one, first of all, Jude describes and contrasts the new believer by uh, the believer from the betrayer by their priorities. Look at verse number uh, 20. But ye, beloved, there's that word again, precious, precious, beloved of God, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The quality of the child of God is that they never stop building. Do you realize that? After I depart this church in the coming days, I'm not going to sit in my easy chair and prop my feet up and stop building. Because building is the quality of the child of God. When God came to Noah and said, Noah, 
I want you to build the ark. I'm going to flood the world. But I've had grace on you. And I want you to join this ark. And I want you to be saved. And Noah said yes. And what did he do? For 120 years. Dad, how would you like a building project? 120 years long. 120 years. Board by board, he prepared and preached. Prepared and preached. Prepared and preached. Day after day after day after day. Until one day, rain began to fall from the sky. He and his family were safe inside the ark. You are to build on your most holy Faith, child of God, you were given faith in Jesus Christ. You didn't work it up. You didn't make it up. It was given to you. What happened to you when you got saved? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Wasn't something you drummed up? What a little bit of excitement about religious things? The Spirit of God came in you and did a work in your life. And you are to build on that work. It is a divine revelation. You are to maintain it. You're to fuss over it. You're to fuss over your Christian life. You're to, get, you're to get downright upset when you do things today that you did five years ago and you're supposed to have grown as a believer. You're to fuss over your Christian life. You're to fuss over good teaching. You're to fuss over and seek out God-honoring words from His Scriptures. You're to read your Bible. You're to build on it day by day, year after year. Philippians 2, 12-13. Paul said, Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. You're to work out your own salvation, not work for your own salvation, but God put it in you, you're supposed to work it out. You see, it is, a, it is something we build on. Then he said, praying in the Holy Ghost. What in the world is that? Good night, you talk to 15 people, you'll get 15 different answers. What's praying in the Holy Ghost? Somebody, I, I had a guy at work tell me, praying in the Holy Ghost is what you do in the altar. When you've been praying, you get moved by God, the Spirit of God comes on you, and your tongue does something like this. I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. The tongue does something like this, up and down. That's when you know you're praying in the Holy Ghost. When you make sounds like, no, 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 no. You make all kinds of weird noises. You fall that pass out. You roll around the ground, bark like a dog. They say, that's praying in the Holy Ghost. No. What is praying in the Holy Ghost? Praying is a vital part of our lives as believers. As a child of God, you ought to pray. You ought to seek God because you're not self-sufficient. And if anybody in this world knows that, it's you that have come to the cross by Jesus Christ, that know that they need a Savior, that know they need a Redeemer. You're to pray and seek God. Here it says pray in the Holy Ghost. Why do we need to pray in the Holy Ghost? Here's why. Because you still got a flesh. You still pray for things that benefit you. You still want things that make you happy. You still want things that may be contrary to God's Word. So you need the mind of the Spirit of God. If you pray in the Spirit, you can't miss. If the Holy Spirit says you ought to pray for this, then you pray for it because you know that's a dead bringer. You can't miss it. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Paul talks about this, expresses the same sentiment in Romans 8, 26 and 27. And maybe gives us a little bit more explanation. He said, likewise, the Spirit also 
helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the Word of God. Paul boils it down and says, listen, you don't even know what you should pray for. When you're praying in the Holy Ghost, when you're yielded to God's Spirit, God can tell you what to pray that is in the perfect will of God. And you can't miss. What does James say? You have not because you ask not. That's one means of prayer. You have not because you consume it on your own lust. You know why God hadn't answered some of your prayers? Because He knows it's out of a heart of lust. It's out of a heart of desire. It's out of a heart of lifting oneself up. It's out of a heart of pride. It hasn't got God's ultimate glory at the end of it. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Here we see not only praying in the Holy Ghost, but verse 21, these are more characteristics of the child of a contrast to the world. The world sees themselves as self-sufficient. They don't need to pray. Your hucksters don't need to pray. Because they're self-sufficient in, the, in, in their own. Notice he said also, keeping yourselves in the love of God. <laughs> I wish I had five days. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What a statement. Uh, let's be clear. I could no more exceed the boundaries of the love of God than I could walk off the edge of the planet and drift off into space. The Lord of Jesus, the Lord of Jesus Christ, uh, is super. The love of Jesus Christ is superabounding and is expansive as the heavens. You can't outlast the love of God. Then what's Jude talking about here? The word "keep," keep yourselves in the love of God, is a word that means to guard, guard the love of God, guard the love of God in your life. He's talking about uh, the, the apostates. They have rejected the love of God. They love their pleasure. They love their sensuality. They love their position. But the child of God sees God's love as precious. As a husband and a wife. You know, you know this principle. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You know, husbands and wives, you know this principle. Keep yourself in love with your wife and your husband. Guard that love. Because here he is, it's the same principle. Protect your love for the Lord Jesus. Don't let setbacks and storms, don't let disappointments and disease rob you of the fact of God's love. I've seen it happen too many times. People go through junk. People have problems and they quit on God and they quit the church and they go home and they won't have anything to do with God because mama got killed. Mama's cancer wasn't cured. Uh, Daddy lost his job. They quit. Why? Because they haven't guarded the love of God. I'll tell you what, you don't deserve anything outside of hell. You don't deserve anything outside the flames of a burning eternal hell. God gives us so much. Who are we to something don't go our way. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in love with Jesus. Keep yourself in love with the one that died for you on the cross. Also, the apostate seeks their own gratification. Notice what it said. 
In verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal redemption. The apostate seeks their own gratification at the expense of the return of Jesus Christ. The apostate says, live any way you please, do what you want, live any way you want, because there is no coming of Jesus. He's not coming. You're not going to stand before God. All that's fairy tales. All that's nonsense. So he has disqualified the coming of the Lord Jesus. But the beloved of God, the child of God, they fix their gaze on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. They have a heartfelt expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. There is no denying that this phrase is talking about the coming mercy of the Lord Jesus when He arrives to claim His bride, when He takes us from this earth and gathers us unto Himself. Child of God, beloved of God, keep your eyes on Jesus above all. Jude saying, don't fall for the counterfeits around you. Keep your eyes on the genuine article. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. Don't be duped. Don't be fooled. Guard the love of God in your heart and life. For He is soon coming to claim His bride. The priorities of the believer, but then the pursuit of the believer. Verse number 22. And of some having compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Another glaring contrast is in regard to the lost. Is in the guard of garnering disciples and converts. The apostate attempts to garner followers so that he can lift himself up. That's why he wants followers, so that he can be pushed up even higher. Remember, the more followers you have, the more of a crowd you can draw. I mean, that's easy. That, that's just, you, I started years ago, I started saying, everybody, this parking lot is closed over here. Don't park over here. Park over here because when people go out drive by, they see a bunch of cars. Oh, man, look what I'm asking. go home. Because the majority draws a crowd. Here, this false prophet is, is garnering disciples. Why? Because it pushes him up. It lifts him up. He says in verse number 20, uh, or the, 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 uh, the false prophet, it lifts him up. He jockeys for position in the ranks of the rich and the famous, tweaking his beliefs in order to better satisfy those he wishes to impress. Why does that fella in Texas, I can't even remember his name, why does he have so followers in a big stadium full of people? Because he tweaks his doctrine just enough to widen his audience. To lift himself up a little bit better and a little bit more. To raise himself up a little bit further. But the beloved are reminded of the compassion of the Lord Jesus. Not only from the New Testament where he had compassion on lepers and blind people and lame people and dead people. But also the compassion that he had for us to come find us. To seek us out when we were in our sin, in our state of condition beyond the help of anyone except the saving God. To seek us out and to save us. You see, that's the difference here. We have, we are to have the compassion of the Lord Jesus. The compassion that says that we will seek out those who are in the same condition we were to draw them up. To other, others. What, what did Jesus say? He put a towel on himself and wiped the feet of his disciples. Do you remember that? Wiped the feet of his disciples. And what did he say? Because I've done this, now you serve one another. 
the apostate garners disciples, that he have a bigger following. The child of God looks to garner disciples so that he may push them up to Jesus. So that he may serve them. So that he may bring them closer to God. Notice he also said making a... Or John, John Seeley said, When the power of reclaiming the lost dies, of the, out of the, dies out of the church, it ceases to be a church. Don't lose a compassion for souls. These verses also exhibit the fashion in which a child of God is to seek for souls in the kingdom of God. His endeavors are to be a full commission, uh, to, go be in, to fulfill the great commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to be a witness at home and abroad. In order to do so, we're to have compassion. But uh, it means the word means pity. It means to, like the Lord Jesus laid aside His robes of glory to come to this earth. He had pity on this earth. We must ask God to give us that compassion. It's not, it's not easy to come by. Let's pray that God gives us that kind of compassion. Notice also, we're to have a discernment. He said making a difference. Now, I know that your TV station says, Channel 9, we're making a difference. Well, I don't exactly think, I do not think that means what you think it means here in this passage of Scripture. But making a difference is, is to discern. To discriminate. Hey, you want Bible for discrimination? Here it is. You're to be careful when going after souls. And I believe he elaborates this even more in the next verse. But we're to take great care in dealing with lost people. That we not be pulled in with them in false teaching. But notice also, he gives in verse number 24, he gives beautiful imagery. Notice 24. And now, or verse number 23. And others, saved by, with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with the flesh. Jude describes the work of reaching the lost it's not every, not everyone's an apostate. Not everyone is turned away completely for God and marked for hell. No, there are lost souls out there that need to be reached, need to be told the truth of God's Word. And you and I, as the church and children of God, we've been given a commission to seek them out and to bring them to the Lord. This is proactive. You're, you're the equivalent of a Christian firefighter. You go into the blazes looking to find lost souls. Looking to find them to draw them out. That's what my heart's been captured with lately. Is that I want to go back into those jails and back into the rescue missions because I can feel as though I'm going out there and snatching people and reaching into the fire once again. Here it is all of us an earnest desire to reach in those places. Else we be condemned of depraved indifference. Do you know... That you can be charged by law for not doing anything? Let's say you're walking down the street. There's a blazing building. A house fire in your neighborhood. You see it ablaze. You hear and look and see a, a child on the inside of that house in their bedroom window. Pounding on the window. Saying, help me. And you walk past and I really don't want to get involved. You could be condemned and charged in the judicial system for depraved indifference church today could be accused of the exact same thing. Depraved indifference. When we do not participate in Jude's admonishment here to seek the lost and to pull them hating their sin, not, not caring anything about their sin, but pulling them out of the fire through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then when we lost that hope, we ceased to be, ceased to live the difference between us and the apostate world. A grave caution, a glaring contrast. Finally, a great confidence. Look at verse 24. 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Jude, with Jude's eye-opening expose and of the apostate lifting off the mask of those who have their intent uh, to destroy the church and what they're trying to do. We might feel as though as a believer, we might be intimidated. Their, their sneers and scoffs, their per, per, persuasive popularity, of their complete confidence in a refusal of God might cause us, the beloved of God, to shrink back and question. Jude has anticipated the effect of his expose on the apostate. And that's why he ends this letter with a wonderful confidence. A great Confidence. You can have confidence when it seems like the world is going away from God and you are in the minority of the minority of the minority. You can have confidence. A genuine, unwavering confidence in Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, we have confidence in God's ability. He said, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. In the mind of the hearer, they may begin to emerge with the question, will I be an apostate? I'm made of the same stuff. I have the same tendencies. Will I reject God? Will I turn away from Jesus Christ? Will I become apostate? After all, everything, every tendency, every desire in the heart of the apostate resides in the heart of every man, including the spirit-indwelt believer. What's to say that you and I will not taste the things of God and turn away from the truth, rejecting it wholly and going after the way of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah? I know I still have a constant battle with sin. You know who you are in the dark. When nobody's watching, who's to say you wouldn't be an apostate? Jude comes out and says, Beloved, he is able. He is able. You are not able to save yourself. You are not able to keep yourself saved. But God is able. He is able to see you through all your faults, all your failures, all your questions. Able to see you through all your doubts, all your despair. He's able to see you through all the present and and through everything and present you faultless. Without accusation. White without as the driven snow, without a single stain before His presence. Why? How can God do this? How can God take me from this place and see me all the way safely there? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. How can He see me spotless, faultless into His presence? Because Jesus paid it all. Because all my sin, all the bliss of this glorious thought, that all my sin, not the part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul, praise the Lord. Listen, He is able to present us faultless before Him. 
And because of Christ, one day we will stand in His presence and experience a joy like none other. I told him in Sunday school this morning, take your, take your 13th birthday, take your wedding day, take your high school graduation, take your birth of your first child, take the birth of your last child and the child in between, put it together when your 50th anniversary. That won't be a scratch on what joy it's going to be when we stand before Jesus, pure as a vivid snow, white and clean, accepted in the beloved. It won't even compare to the joy. You don't know what joy lies ahead for the child. A joy to be standing in His presence. Clean. Pure. How can we know this? 2 Peter 2.9 God knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust to the, unto the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to get you there. Through hook or crook. Through any way He can. He'll take you there and make sure you're standing before Him. Faultless before the throne of God. 2 Timothy 2.13 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. God knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost seeing He come to God by Him. Seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. God is able in an apostate world that's going with the blackness of darkness of sin. All around us He's able to deliver you. You, you into His presence. You into His joy. He's able to deliver you. He's able to see you through. In His ability, we're to have confidence in His supremacy. Verse number 25, To the glory, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Jude Breaks into doxology now. He's been teaching. He's been teaching. But when he gets to that, when he gets to that sureness of that, of that, that, that claim that God is able, he begins to praise God. He begins to glorify God. He begins to somewhat sing a song of praise to God that has such an ability to make, uh, to take the guilty, hell-deserving sinner and present him innocent and gloriously clean before the eyes of God. He is the all-wise God that knows how to do that. Why can we be confident at death's door? Why can we be confident as we go through the dark days of life? When we feel as though we have failed God, why can we be confident? Because God is a saving God. God's intent from the very beginning, before the foundations of the world, was to send His Son so that fallen man might be saved. God is a saving God. God's desire is to save because God is a saving God. He initiated salvation from the very beginning. God made a way of salvation through His beloved Son. God's intent, His heart's desire is to deliver us into His presence, not damn us unto His presence, from His presence in a place called hell. His intent, God's desire is to save you. It's what He wants to do. He wants you to know Him. 2 Peter 3, 9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
He is a saving God. Why? For your sakes? You know, that's what the world is profuse in now. A man-centered gospel. A gospel that says Jesus came for the benefit of man. Jesus came to make your life better. That He died on the cross to benefit you. To give you a, a, a good feeling about yourself. And that He died, that He was raised from the grave for your benefit. That He saves and transforms for our benefit. We won't be a menace to society. We'll be better people. We'll be good people. If, if we trust in Jesus, they've got it all wrong. Look at, what, look at what Jude says. He said, To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. He does all of what He does for His own glory. For His own majesty. For the expansion of His kingdom. For the witness of His power. The power of His great name. Solo Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory, Jude says. God saved you for His glory. He's the Creator. He deserves it. He initiated all of it. He drew you to Himself. He deserves the glory. Count Zinzendorf, the founder, of the lead, the founder and leader of the Moravian Missions Movement, that spread the gospel over much of the known world long before the modern mission movement of the 19th century said this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We live for God's glory. Not for our own namesake, but for His glory. We're saved for God's glory. And we will be with Him forever because of God's ultimate glory. Not yours. God didn't save you to make your life better. Reality is if He saved you. He probably made your life a little bit worse. But He saved you for His ultimate glory. After exhorting the people of His parish. Remember Dr. Roland Taylor went to. Went to the stake to be burned. He exhorted His people to stay with God's word. Dr. Roland Taylor turned his face toward heavens. And lifted up his hands. And then he said this with all confidence in his voice. Merciful Father of heaven, for Jesus Christ my Savior's sake, receive my soul into thy hands. At that split moment, a soldier took a halberd, a long battle axe, and split his skull and killed him. In that moment, the next thing Roland Taylor heard was the voice of his beloved Savior saying, Well done. Thou good and faithful servant. That's confidence. Do you have confidence? Do you have confidence in your profession? If we were to put the contrast between what Jude says a believer is, praying in the Holy Ghost, building on your most holy faith, keeping yourselves in the love of God, if we were to compare your life to what Jude says a believer's is to be, would they match? Or would you better align yourself with the apostate world around you that picks and chooses what parts of the Bible they want to do and does what they like? Wherever their belly takes them, wherever their fleshly desires take them, they do what they will. Do you have confidence? If God were to come today, if Jesus Christ would appear, 
would you be left behind? To face the seven year tribulation? To face the wrath of God unleashed on this earth? Or would you be snatched away? If you were to die in moments, do you have confidence to know that you'll be presented in His presence with joy, exceeding joy? Do you have confidence? Where's your confidence? Do you have confidence today? That He is able to deliver you? That He has delivered you, saved you? Do you have confidence? If not, come to Jesus today. Let's all stand to our feet as we come with a song of invitation. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking in this room. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You're here today. And you do not have confidence. Ron, Brother Ronnie, if I died today, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd stand before, I, would, I would stand before God in exceeding joy. I think I may stand before God shaking at my very knees, wondering what He will do with me. Come today. Come, no Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus before it's too late. You come. The Heavenly Father, Lord, I preach the Word. God, I pray You'd take the Word, that You would examine our hearts by it, that You would convict of sin, that You'd strengthen what needs to be strengthened, that You would break down what needs to be broken, that You would plow up what needs to be plowed, that You would build on what needs to be built on. God, have Your will and way. You In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. I'm trusting to We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand